This is the Seminole Wars Authority. Hello and welcome. The U.S. government spent millions of dollars and incurred thousands of casualties attempting to remove the Seminole from Florida in the early 1800s. Today, the Seminole are still here and they're thriving. They're integral to a study of Florida history. And they are the subject of fascination in American popular culture. A 1950s Greyhound bus line booklet features iconic sites to visit around the United States. For Florida, that meant no Disney Park, hadn't been built yet. No NASA Space Center, again, not built yet. The Florida tourist attraction were the Seminole. Doug Alderson returns to discuss how he presents the Seminole in his books, one of which is on such old Florida attractions. Seminole are also portrayed in vintage art around the Sunshine State, and no study of American alligators is complete without an exploration of seminal wrestling of the ancient creatures. Doug even explores the seminal and spooky ghost stories. Topping it off is his compelling historical novel, Seminal Freedom. It traces the tale of a self-liberated black teen and her adventures and contacts in the first two seminal wars. We will discuss all this and more. Doug Alderson, welcome back to the Seminole Wars Authority. Yeah, thank you. Doug, you've authored a book, The Orchid Ghost and Other Tales from the Swamp. It's a work of fiction with ghost stories. Some of those ghost stories take place during the Seminole Wars. Tell us about that. The updated version, they asked me to do a, a second edition with a different title called Spooky Stories from the Swamp. So the book originated when I taught summer camp for about 10 years for the Tallahassee Museum in the 1990s. When I was taking kids camping, along with a couple of the other teachers, suddenly these young people who are used to uh, television, movies, and video games, this is before uh, cell phones really hit it big, but still they were in the video games and stuff. Suddenly they didn't have all these entertainment devices out and camping out. <laughs> and so we, we realized after dark around the campfire, we needed to tell them stories. Going back to the old-fashioned way of entertaining young people was storytelling, and I grew up listening to stories from my elders when I grew up. We started reviving that art, and some of these stories derive from that. Most of these stories are, some are inspired by true events, but most are works of fiction. But there were ways for me to relay history and natural history to the young people. They didn't always realize they were learning, so it was kind of a tricky way to teach them. That's how storytelling really worked with young people, too, a lot of times. You would relay values and information in an entertaining way, and that's been happening for thousands of years in different cultures, storytelling. So this is no different from that. As far as the Summon of Wars, I glanced through the revised book, and I had added a couple of new stories in that. And there are several references to the Seminole Wars, because I do like to dive into history. Some of those stories, I delve into some of the mythology, like what they call the little people, what the Creeks and Seminoles, some of them call the Isti Labuchkaji. One of the stories is an encounter with little people, inspired by getting lost around Lake Istapoga, checking out some newly acquired public land, seeing a wild boar, and just wondering what if I had been trapped up a tree all night, that type of thing. It goes into a fiction, but at the same time, I'm trying to relay some of the mythology of the Seminole Indians, and then I go into, at the end of each story, I have a factual section where I do relay factual information. 
And then I have a section of storytelling tips. So if somebody wanted to tell some of these stories, they might have some props they use and, or use different voices and things like that to make it more entertaining. I do have stories relating to the first and second Seminole War as far as I go into some of that history at the end of a couple of stories. It is a work of fiction. I'd say that the book is advertised as Pineapple Press, the book of fiction. But I did have a couple of people ask me after they start reading, they thought it was true. And I, they asked me, are these really true? And I said, well, no. Some are inspired by true stories. And a lot of the places I talk about are real places because they're some of Florida's best swamps. So it is also a way for me to highlight the swamps, the history, and the natural history of the great swamps in Florida, ranging from Tate's Hill up in North Florida down to the Everglades and Big Cypress Swamp. Okay, but which are the seminal ones? One of the stories is one of my favorites. I used to explore a place called the Mud Swamp New River Wilderness Area, which is in the National Forest. And back in the late 70s and 80s, I was active in the Sierra Club, and I helped get that area protected by federal law as a wilderness area because it is a truly wild area, and it's a remnant of Tate's Hill Swamp. So I explored that area a few times, and I, without a compass, I think I would have been lost a couple times. <laughs> so I do have a story about wandering through that swamp and then finding what amounts to as a ghost, an escaped slave that is searching for the Fort at Prospect Bluff in the early 1800s. So I eventually take this person I found to Prospect Bluff where that's where he's seeking and he finds his home there. He finds peace there, even though the fort's no longer there. But it gave me a launching pad to talk about the first Seminole War and what happened at Prospect Bluff. The British had left a fully fortified fort for mostly uh, free blacks and escaped slaves and some Native Americans on the Apalachicola River. Eventually, this was blown up by forces by land and by water. It's blown up in 1916. That preceded the first Seminole War. It enabled me to kind of launch into that history, the end of the story. So it's, to me, an entertaining way of launching into that for young people. That's one story. And I do have one for the second Seminole War where there's a story that takes place on the Wiflacoochee River around the cove of the Wiflacoochee, the famous holdout for the Seminoles, where they were bordered by swamps and river on most sides. And it was nearly impenetrable for quite a while. And it took the Army uh, thousands of men to dislodge them from there. So I go into a mythological tale a father and daughter have along the river that ties in with Seminole mythology, one of the supernatural creatures that a Seminole elder told me about, called a Nogashomi, which is a bear-like creature. So then I launch into, at the end, facts about the Second Seminole War and why that area was important. You can see how I'm trying to highlight history through entertainment in a way. Doug, you have some personal ties to the Seminole. Tell us about that. Yeah, so in many ways, I became involved with Muskogee Creek people, descendants and people from Oklahoma, and then as well as Seminole people. And they're obviously, as most people know, very related together culturally and hereditary. Back when I was 21, I was adopted by Muskogee Creek man, spiritual leader in Oklahoma. I visited him a couple times, named Bearheart. He's since passed away several years ago. That opened my eyes to the Muskogee way of life and way of thinking and spiritual ways. I came to work at the Tallahassee Museum, and we had a Native American festival every fall. We brought in many Seminoles from South Florida. Some of those Seminoles came to a traditional Creek Indian ceremonial grounds to visit, 
and I became very good friends with uh, Mary Johns and Archie Johns and their family from the Brighton Reservation. And then some of their friends, I visited them a couple times, and they came up many times, as well as to the annual festivals at the Tallis Museum, which went on for about, oh, I guess it started in the 80s, so 80s and 90s, pretty much. And then it, the funding kind of petered out and ended. But for about 20 years it happened, and I was on the staff for the 90s, so I helped as a staff person. We built Chiquis, and I helped Mary and her family build the Chiquis, which is traditional structure, and I got to see how the roof was made, which was fascinating, to help with that and see how it's watertight. I was always interested in how that worked. And just learned the foods and the different ways. And Mary was very open with her knowledge, really an incredible extroverted person, which we really appreciated. Once she trusted you, she definitely seemed to open up and share many stories and her knowledge. She has since passed away a long time ago, but I really appreciated that relationship with she and her family. So that was one of my openings, and some of her relatives would come up with her, and I'd get to know them. And, and I met other people at the festival that would set up and do cooking and Bobby Henry would build on a canoe. He never would finish, but <laughs> but we'd have that log, and all week he would be demonstrating the, the art of dugout canoe building, so I got to know him and some of his family members. So that was a real gift for me to have that relationship go on. What inspired me to incorporate some of what I heard, some of the stories, into my work as well. And I found quite a bit of overlap with the Muscogee Creek beliefs. Some of them spoke the same language. They had some of the same clans. They just pretty closely knit that way. In our Seminole Wars Foundation Research Library, we've got an old pamphlet from a Greyhound bus line, and it shows different travel destinations in the United States. And in the 1950s, the Florida attraction were the Seminoles. In A New Guide to Old Florida Attractions, you include Seminole Villages in South Florida. One could argue that the Seminole have been a draw for outsiders since the early 1800s, but not always in a good way. Yeah, they mostly fit in when I'm talking about the Seminole villages that were formed in the early 1900s down in South Florida, Palm Beach, Miami area. And they were certainly major attractions during that time. Henry Flagler's Railroad would bring people down there. They were tourist villages, and because the Seminoles during that time, the Everglades was being drained, the game were becoming more scarce, the alligators were becoming more scarce, so they found they needed to broaden their economic activity. They couldn't just sell alligator hides or skins and couldn't just live off the land. They really needed to generate some income. So these villages would start up. Some of them were kind of seasonal for the winter tourists, then they would go back into the glades, a lot of the people. But I do cover some of that history in the book. And I cover the modern attractions. I cover more of the Billy Swamp Safaris as an attraction that people can visit. And then some of the airboat attractions along the Tamiami Trails. Those are some of the existing ones that they could visit. And, of course, I dive into that more in my Traveling Florida's Seminole Trail book, which I already covered in a previous podcast with you. Didn't want to overlap too much with that. Didn't want to ignore it either. Well, Doug, that brings us to another book that you've written, America's Alligator, A Popular History. Everybody knows Seminoles and alligators are closest best buddies. Tell us about this. 
Yeah, America's alligator is really the cultural history associated with the alligators. It covers some biology, but it's really not about the biology of the alligator. Although I get a lot of questions, people ask me about the biology of the alligator, so I have to be up on that. But it is about more of the popular history associated with the alligator, human history. Obviously, Seminole Indians tie in quite well. They were renowned for the Seminole alligator wrestling, so I go into how that started. It was very interesting to find out that... There's an ironic twist to the Seminole alligator wrestling for show. As far as the wrestling for show occurred initially by non-Seminole Indians down on the Palm Beach, Miami area. One guy is credited with starting the alligator wrestling down there was Alligator Joe. His name was Joe Frazee. And there was more than one Alligator Joe, I found. <laughs> but there was one in Jacksonville, and they got confused a lot, evidently. But this guy in South Florida, he started his attraction around 1895. He dammed up some of the canals in Miami area and made pens for his alligators and started attractions. Biggest attraction was over near Flagler's Hotel in Palm Beach, so it was really convenient. It was only a mile away, so people could go down the jungle road and visit Alligator Joe's alligator farm. Alligator Joe would do some wrestling. He would show them. He would get tips and He'd make pretty good bit of money on the winter tourists, mostly, that would stay at the hotel. So I found some early postcards of a Seminole named White Tiger. I assume he was Seminole, wrestling an alligator at the South Beach Alligator Farm in Miami area. 1903 was the earliest reference, but I can't find much history about White Tiger. The most famous Seminole alligator wrestlers really occurred after about 1914-1915. There was a family called the Coppingers. And they started an attraction called uh, Coppinger's Tropical Gardens in 1914. And they started employing Seminoles to, first they started employing Seminoles to bring them alligators, bring them hides, bring them alligator eggs, baby alligators to sell <laughs> to tourists, which was very common at the time. Then they started realizing that they could teach Seminoles to do the classic alligator wrestling moves. It would look more authentic than white guys doing it. This became a big hit. They keyed on that and they realized this is big. And so the Seminole alligator wrestlers in their colorful clothing looked much more authentic wrestling alligators like they had always done it. Well, hadn't they? Certainly Seminole Indians knew how to not really wrestle for show, but they knew how to handle alligators in the wild because sometimes they would be pretty far away from the village, and so they didn't want to kill an alligator in the wild, and then by the time they got to the village, the meat's starting to rot in the heat. You know, down the Everglades, it's a much warmer environment than they were probably more used to in up north Florida and farther north. So they would often capture an alligator live and then bring it to the village, and then they would butcher it at the village and keep the meat fresh. They knew about handling the alligator, but they wouldn't really wrestle it for show until they were hired by the Coppingers to wrestle for tourists. And then other villages started forming, like Musa Isle and some other ones, that drew lots of tourists. And these were tourists that mostly came down initially by rail, Flagler's Railroad. And then as cars opened up, as the highways opened up, they brought even more tourists down. A Seminole alligator wrestler could make more money in a big show for the tourists than a week of average labor. So it was very lucrative. And culturally, they had to be a little careful because their culture really didn't want them to torture animals or anything like that. They wanted to show some respect for the animals. They had to get permission from the snake clan to wrestle alligators. They used to have an alligator clan in Florida that died out. So the closest relative was the snake clan. They would go to an elder in the snake clan and get permission to wrestle the alligators. 
and they claimed they were doing it with respect, not torturing the alligators. I did interview a Seminole Man in Oklahoma running the museum there. They do have alligator clans that survive in Oklahoma, just not in Florida, even though they don't have any alligators in Oklahoma. <laughs> I did meet a Muscogee man who was, said he was from the alligator clan, so some of the Muscogee people have alligator clan that survived. Not to be unduly insensitive, but maybe somebody from the Oklahoma alligator clan could come to Florida and help reestablish it. That could probably happen if it hasn't happened already with mixing and so forth people traveling more and more interactions with the Oklahoma Seminoles. It could happen. Seminoles seem to have a monopoly on alligator wrestling in Florida. And now we may be coming full circle with public alligator wrestling performances. They were certainly the monopoly during the heyday. And this continued through the 1980s, 90s. Now, Modern day, not so much, because when the gambling started, the Seminoles didn't need to do as many things for money, like wrestling alligators and selling crafts and things. Some of the villages hired non-Seminole people to wrestle alligators. <laughs> the Seminoles would teach them how to do it. I went to the Miccosukee Indian Village a few years ago, and there was a Hispanic man who was hired, and he was really good. He had the classic moves, and he was taught by the Miccosukee elders how to wrestle alligators. So he was not a Miccosukee. He was the village alligator wrestlers. And that is true with uh, some of the other attractions. There's not as many of the villages anymore. There's the Miccosukee Indian Village and Tamiami Trail, and there's the Okali Village, I believe, in the Hollywood reservation they do maybe an alligator wrestling event i think once a week or so it's not every day or anything the villages for the public are not as prevalent and neither is alligator wrestling with the seminoles some of the alligator farms like in Kissimmee, they do they call cracker alligator wrestling non-indians wrestling alligators and they do the same move. If you go watch alligator wrestling, it's pretty much similar moves. People expect that they want somebody to stick their head inside the mouth with the jaw pried open. They want to see somebody hold the jaws shut with their chin. They want to flip the alligator over and put him to sleep by rubbing their stomach. Uh, those are some of the classic moves. But everybody who has wrestled an alligator any length of time is usually missing a finger or two, at least part of a finger. So. That's pretty common. About the funniest account was James Billy. He wrestled alligators when he was younger, when he became chief. First time, he would show off to a visiting celebrity. I think Connie Stevens was one, and he got bit in the buttocks for that one. And then another time, he got a finger bitten off, showing off for another group. So he realized he was too rusty. to really, You can't just jump in there, have not wrestled for 10 years or something, and think you can do it. It takes a little practice. I know his stories of when he got bit a couple times. It's One of them is in the museum, the Atataki, the one in, near the Billy Swamp Safari. It has several nice oral history accounts. It's a great resource to listen to different stories from Seminoles in the museum. And he's recorded some stories there. I did talk to him about the Traveling Florida Seminole Trail. I did talk to him on the phone, and he gave me his blessing about that book. So that was good when he was chairman. Doug, you being a prolific writer... You've got Nostalgic Florida, iconic vintage art of the Sunshine State. What seminal aspects are in that book? In that book, I keyed on really other things besides seminal. I keyed on the old Florida ways they promoted the state, making the state sound like romantic Eden, paradise, starting in the late 1800s. And it's very romanticized, starting with the trade cards and going out some of the magazines, going up into postcards and government publications where most of the climate was exaggerated. Carl Fisher, trying to develop Miami Beach, pretty much got the bathing beauty mythology started. 
where every beach has beautiful women that you just waiting for you. I go into that in that book because in the back of my mind, I'd love to do a book in the future about how Seminole Indians have been portrayed through history, through art, starting with drawings and then photographs. I do have a good collection of postcards, but I don't have as many of the drawings. I may have to tap your museum for some of those and some of the other museums. That's a subject that really interests me. I thought that'd be a great follow-up to the Nostalgic Florida book because I did omit the Seminoles from that roughly because it almost takes the whole book by itself for that. (laughs) During the wars, they were depicted often as bloodthirsty savages, scalping people and whatnot. But then Osceola was romanticized, on the other hand, so it was like this noble figure captured under a white flag of truce type of thing. Two ends of it uh, were portrayed. Then later on, of course especially when the Seminoles got into the villages, they were portrayed as these people that have always been in the Everglades. They've been there for generations in the Everglades. And almost no history of them coming from other places. <laughs> so, I'm sure they've had some intermarriage. They did have some, during the wars, a group, Chikaika, Chikika, I don't know how that was pronounced. He was believed to be Calusa Indian, and some of his band would call the Spanish Indians, which were likely had some collusive blood. So there's obviously some intermixing going on with the survivors of some of the original Florida tribes. How many survived? I don't know. That's anybody's guess. Um, doubt if there's any extensive DNA tests that are going to go on that could try to determine any of that. <laughs> Did you portray anything with soldiers of the 1830s? Not much with soldiers. Really, the book is more post-Civil War. It's when the tourist boom started which is mostly post-Civil War. There wasn't a lot of tourism. Before the Civil War, some people came down for the Mineral Springs. They were probably the first attractions, and that persisted after the Civil War. But then places like the Steamboat Rides up the Okawaha River to Silver Springs, that became really big. And then when the railroads started going on both sides, the Henry Flagler and Henry Plant on the West Coast, they pretty much opened up the coastlines for tourists. And then eventually the highway system certainly opened up for more of the middle class, uh, not just the upper crust people. A lot of the pictures in the book are funny pictures because they are pretty exaggerated. Florida is portrayed as never having a winter time. The, the temperatures in the summer never get above the upper 70s. I mean, they're just amazing claims in government publications, really. <laughs> so I quote and I even show scanned photos from some of the booklets of government publications showing the temperature range in the winter and summer only varies by eight degrees. So it's <laughs> no wonder Florida's been growing the way it has when people used to see things like that. Of course, no mention of hurricanes and things like that. Doug, you've also written a novel, Seminole Freedom. This gets us into Seminole Maroon or Black Seminoles. Tell us about this story. Right, Seminole Freedom, I started this in the 90s. And I only self-published it maybe originally 12 or so years ago. And I redid it about a year ago. I, I just cleaned up some of the language and a couple facts, historical facts. There's been some new information about Prospect Bluff. I wanted to make sure I got my facts right. It was inspired because a lot of people know about the Underground Railroad and the, the courageous Harriet Tubman and other people bringing slaves to the north during slave times, but not as much the pipeline to the south. People escaping to the south, they either joined the Seminoles, they became slaves of the Seminoles, but slavery of the Seminoles were often quite different than the plantation slavery. It was, it was more like a sharecropper relationship where they gave a portion of their crops type of thing. and. And they also were expected to help defend the village. Often quite a different form of slavery. They may claim they were slaves, but they were certainly not in bondage in the same way. So I wanted to highlight that. 
that fascinating relationship. And what I've been learning more and more is that there were more blacks free from either the Spanish or the English during the time of the Negro Fort at Prospect Bluff. A lot of those folks had been already freed by the English and Spanish, as well as their ranks uh, buoyed by escaped slaves, mostly from Alabama and Georgia, coming down the river system or some of the trails. So there's a real combination there at that fort of free blacks, because the English pretty much would give, allow freedom. If you helped them fight and uh, man the fort, you were free. And the Spanish were already granting freedom for uh, a lot of black people in Florida at that time. In Fort Mose, of course, in the 1700s, if you helped defend the north part of St. Augustine, you were free. You had your fort there. You were free citizens. That was an amazing example, Spanish granting freedoms to help fight mostly the English. So it's a historical novel, but you still wanted to make sure you got historical facts right within the fictitious story. It's an historical novel. I wanted to do uh, fictional characters that were not famous. So I'd read novels of the Seminole Wars. They often have Osceola as the main character. They've been written for generations. I have some real old novels about Osceola, and they went right up into the modern day, pretty much. So people like to key on some of the famous figures. But I wanted to key on more common people that were part of that whole struggle. Like, So my main character is Jenny, who was about 11 or 12 at the time of sleeping with her mother and another young man from a plantation in Georgia and going down the Apalachicola to Prospect Bluff. And then they befriend a young Muskogee man named Crazy Bear. And there's different characters in the book that are fictional. But the events that are depicted, I like to think that they're all factual to the best of my ability. The different battles, wars, the timeline should all be fairly factual. And it's like any historical fiction. When you come up with dialogue, even if it's a famous person that people know about, you're still making up dialogue. There's not enough written accounts of dialogue to be completely nonfiction. Even a book about Osceola is going to be fictionalized. They're going to his way of thinking, his dialogue with different people. So it is a historical fiction piece. I worked on it for several years before I finally felt like I brought it together and published it. For me, it's hard to promote a work of fiction. Nonfiction is much easier. I get the talks, that I show photos. For fiction, you have to show up to a group and do some readings and talk about it. I don't have as much of the audience for that. The people who read it seem to like it. I get a lot of good feedback about it, but it's, it's never been popular as far as sales go. <laughs> Initially, I thought maybe I can make it a young adult book since it does start out there, young teenagers. But then I go into the whole life. I, I pretty much follow Jenny as she grows into adulthood. And then, then she has a child, pretty much goes into not a young adult, but it goes into adulthood. So it's not really a young adult novel that way. Young adult novels, they have to stay young adults. So I would have had to stop it at some point. Presenting Jenny through the span of her life from a teenager to adult covers a lot of historical ground. I did want to go through the First and Second Seminole War in the book, which is what I did, so I could talk about both of those wars. Jenny, First Seminole War, she joins a group, and they're fleeing Prospect Bluff in 1816. Andrew Jackson's on their heels. They go to Tallahassee. They go to Miccosukee. They go to the Suwannee River, and then they have to cross the river, and that's where Jackson stops. There was a rear guard action going on to defend the people that were crossing the river. And Peter McQueen was one of the Creek leaders. They were fighting Jackson through that whole area. Once they were on the other side of the Swanee, they were left alone. Jackson turned around at that point, went to St. Mark's. I did want to cover that, but then later on, I wanted to get into the Second Seminole War. So eventually, Jenny marries Crazy Bear, and then they're on the Wiflacoochee River. They go through some of those battles, and then eventually, they end up in the Everglades. 
I won't reveal too much because I'll give away too much of the plot. And Jenny, she's just ordinary Jenny. She's not a leader of the battles, but she's there. Seen through the eyes of Jenny mostly, so it's not someone who's a leader in the battle. She does help with the battles, but she's not like a war leader. So that part goes back to someone's caught up in the conflict, but, but is not one of the leaders. I think that helps. Some of the other plot things that go on, it's obviously not, it doesn't cover just battles. It goes into slavery and other events in her life and tragedy and so forth. Everybody in the book is some kind of PTSD in some form. There's, I don't think it could help but not have that. They didn't label it then as that, but anybody who went through that much trauma is going to have some, uh, some pain that way. What type of historical research did you do to prepare to write this novel? read a lot of slave narratives. Obviously, I couldn't talk to any living people that survived it because it's too far ago. But there were a lot of slave narratives. They often occurred during the WPA during 1930s, and there were still a lot of surviving slaves. And some had been part of the Native American cultures as well, so I thought that was interesting. I read several of those books. Some are online, some are physical books. And then also I read Kenneth Porter's book on Black Seminoles, and there's some other works about the Black Seminoles and some early accounts in different books. As far as your antagonists go, do you have any Simon Legree characters? Terrible slave masters, as we saw in Uncle Tom's Cabin? Simon Legree, the big antagonist and cruel master. The master that begins my book, he's not a nice guy, but he's not, I wouldn't say he's quite as cruel as that, as Simon Legree by any means. He frees a guy named Old Tom. He gives him his freedom as an example that if slaves work really hard, they can someday gain their freedom, and it, which was kind of a ruse because Old Tom, by the time he got free, was too old to do about anything. But it was a way to show, hey, look, I freed Old Tom, so if you work really hard, you can get free too. That was explored a little bit. But Jenny does end up with another master later in the book, I don't want to reveal too much, who is just a family. She's just one slave helping a family and a store. So there are different types of slavery. This was not a plantation at this point. She's just helping out with the store and helping with the kids, like their servant, I guess, more than a slave, but she is still technically a slave. She takes her a long time. She does end up growing fairly fond of the family, but obviously she had her reservations. She had no choice in the matter to speak of. There were different types of slavery, and it all depended on who the master was, really, and what situation. A plantation, obviously a cotton plantation, with hundreds of workers was a pretty brutal place compared to some situations. You might be a blacksmith, you might be working in a store, and different things would be maybe not quite as brutal as a plantation. I think a, I think a cotton plantation would be the most brutal of any of them. A sugar plantation, any of those big things, people are working in the fields, and survival rate was pretty low in a lot of those places. They just had to keep bringing in more slaves because they didn't survive that long. What do you mean by the title, Seminole Freedom? I came up with the title because it does imply that, in this case, they had freedoms with the Seminoles. Now, I explain the difference. Some black people ended up being part of the tribe, intermarrying with Seminoles, and if they were considered slaves, it was often a different type of slaves. Many became interpreters, and they became warriors to fight with the Seminoles. And this progressed as, like, Second Seminole War, the Dade Battle. I think most of the black Seminoles were not part of the initial battle. They came in afterwards, after the battle was over. But eventually they became part of the fighting force with the Seminoles. So I found that interesting when I researched the Dade Battle. Black Seminoles with the rear guard in some ways, as things got desperate by practicality, became part of the fighting force. 
What sites in Seminole Freedom did you visit in preparation for writing the book? And why is it important to visit such sites when they're available? Yeah, well, visit sites, you just get a better feel. You have to use your imagination a bit because this thing's happened a long time ago. When I go to Prospect Bluff, I've been there several times, you'll see the earthworks are left, obviously no structure. But you can get a feel for how things were laid out and maybe start to imagine what it would have been like to, to live there and defend that place and feel like you have a chance to survive in this place without being molested and just go into the way of thinking people must have had when they were defending that fort. You were given a fully armed fort with a full magazine with cannon, and for people who didn't have anything, suddenly you have all these means to defend yourself. That must have been somewhat liberating feeling. I visited that several times. At the Talos Museum, we also had done a reproduction slave quarters behind the Bellevue Plantation, which is an old plantation house that came from Tallahassee, moved onto the grounds. And that is just a dirt floor structure, very simple. And there was a kitchen where slaves would have worked, as well as in the house, as well as the fields and so forth. But you sit in that, that structure that's so simple, just a simple log cabin type thing. You get a feel for how primitive that existence was. And that was true for many slaves, very primitive conditions. And then I've been to places like, not in a book, but at Kingsley Plantation, which was a little different type, and the structures are still standing. The walls are still standing because they're built to the coquina-type cement, and they're in a arc because that was the style of a West African-type village. So it was almost built in a village style. Kingsley married an African woman, and so there were several people that had more direct African ties there. I thought that was fascinating, but you can walk around there and really get a feel. They're still slaves, and they still lived in these separate, small, very small quarters. I visited several sites, and I've been to some of the battle sites, camped on the Wifakuchi River, and I've been to the Dade Battle site several times and been to the reenactment. Paddled the Kissimmee River area from Orlando to Lake Okeechobee in a kayak, so I... I'm familiar with the chain of lakes and all that, and that was certainly central to a lot of the Seminoles during a certain period. So I've been to many sites, and just to get a feel for it, you just let your mind wander and you let your senses pick up whatever you can and put it down on paper and imagine you're a person living in a certain time frame and how they would think and feel and how they would act. That's the way of a writer, how you would do it. Now, Doug, the slave master that you referred to earlier was no Simon Legree. But you still do have some incredibly evil characters. Talk about them. <laughs> so the slave hunter named Rube, slave hunters kept coming into Florida. Even after the Seminoles moved to a reservation in central Florida, they still kept coming looking for escaped slaves. And, and even if they found maybe people that were free, they could still pass them off as escaped slaves. I don't think some people were very picky about taking those people in and putting them back into slavery, even if they had been freed by the Spanish or English. So Rube, he's, he's almost beyond redemption in a lot of ways. At some point when Jenny encounters him later in the book, she tries to find out if he has much of a soul left. He reveals a little bit about himself, but then he knows he's beyond redemption in a lot of ways. He's just in it for the money and doesn't really care much about the people. My favorite bad guy is Mr. Dirk, who's the overseer. For some reason, Mr. Dirk attracts things that bite. So whether it's chiggers, hornets, yellow jackets, alligators, things always seem to want to bite Dirk. He's just a bad guy and just seems to draw that. So it's just kind of a funny quality. There's a couple of funny episodes where he does get bit by different things. I'm favorable to Jenny, but I have a good feeling for Crazy Bear since he did have to go through the Battle of Horseshoe Bend and he has a lot of trauma and he has to work through that. 
when he's young, he doesn't really have the patience to be a good hunter. And so he eventually has to get to the point where he can work through some of that trauma and get to where he can actually hunt deer and without moving for a long time and things like that. He just can't sit still that long. I like all the characters. When you write a historical novel, I, I really haven't done much in this area, but for this book, they all come to life, and you just want to find out where their lives are going to go. <laughs> because you don't always know in the beginning. Is there a sequel in store? I don't have any plans at the moment, but you never know when it might hit me. <laughs> but it's been quite a while since I've written that type of uh, historical fiction. It'll be fun to dive into it again, but no plans at the moment. All right, I'm going to do a bad pun, Doug. With all the books you've written, it's okay if you coast for the next one. Well, the next book is already finished. It's coming out in March. That's on Florida's coast. It's similar to my Rivers book, which I talked about. It covers every section of the coast. There's 12 segments I divide up the coast. And I do, it's similar. I cover some of the major historical features as well as natural history features of the coast. It has a lot of photos. But I do cover some historical reference to the Seminoles, especially Egmont Key, and a bit about some of the shipwrecks and then the Hallwood store. It's not extensive for Seminoles. You know, obviously the coast was important for the Seminoles, and it does tie in with their history quite a bit. And it's also a place where they got a lot of arms from the Spanish and from Cuba. They would go there and meet Spanish ships. That's the next one coming out. And then I'm not really into a project at the moment. The publisher wants to see where all my different books are, from a commercial standpoint, see which ones they're selling the best before they give me the green light on the next one. I've had quite a run lately with them of a book a year. Hopefully, it'll give me a green light for maybe the seminal pictorial history type book. It needs to be in color, especially the, for the last century. They've been color photos or colorized, and I think it'd be very colorful. So I hope it's not a black and white book. As we're closing, Doug, please assess how vital is it to include or use Seminole to illustrate Florida's history during that period of territorial and then state presence here? Florida, you can't just leave out the Seminole Indians. They're integral with the state's history. And it is a bit ironic that the U.S. government spent so much time and money and lives to try to get rid of the Seminoles. And then a few decades later, they became a tourist attraction. And suddenly they're going, hey, come see the Seminoles. So it's kind of interesting turnaround. But whether it's the wars or whether it's the post-wars with the villages and all the time after that, now it's casinos and different things. Seminoles are part of Florida's history, and it's something people need to be aware of and how it came about for the last few centuries. And I don't want to leave out the original Florida tribes, too, because I do cover that in my coastal book as well, because a lot of people just think of Florida only has the Seminole Indians. Well, no, there are lots of tribes here before Seminoles. And there are also the Muscogee Creek Indians still have a lot of people in West Florida, mostly in the Panhandle. They may not always look, quote, Indian, but they certainly carry on some of their culture. So Florida is a rich state, and there's different parts of the state. It could almost be a state among themselves. It's so different in different parts of the state. That's what's fascinating about Florida, I think. I always try to give people a sense of place, in a sense, what's the history? Who was here before this place? Whether you're kayaking down a river or taking a hike or just driving a road through the country, what was this like before? Who was here before all this development? It's important for people of all ages to embrace that type of thinking. Not just older people, but the kids, too, need to learn about it. And some do. I think in fourth grade, they really cover photo history in most of the public schools. That's when they really dive into it. And with that, we're out of time. Doug Alderson, thanks again for joining us for the Seminole Wars Authority.
Well, I appreciate you doing this, and the foundation is helping to keep part of Florida's history alive, and that's very important. Having a library there is going to outlive all of us for generations to come, so that's going to be very important down the road. I do appreciate this opportunity to share and keep up the good work. Thank you, Patrick. This podcast is copyright 2022, the Seminole Wars Foundation, all rights reserved. Find us on the web at seminalwars.podbean.com or seminalwars.us. Front and back bumper music courtesy of the U.S. Navy Band.